You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from John 10, 22 through 39. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to say a word of prayer here as I get my set up here. Uh, Let's turn to the Father together. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. There is no God like you. And we have the privilege of knowing you because your word has revealed your son to us. And he who sees the son has seen the Father. We pray, Lord, that you would bring our view of you into greater clarity this morning. That the Spirit would be at work doing what the Spirit does, bringing about conviction of sin, of matters of judgment and righteousness, of squaring us up firmly on the foundation of Christ to give us great assurance of our salvation. And sanctify us in your word. You say that you sent your word out that you might heal your people, Lord. Today, would you heal us? Would you bind up our hearts, tend to our wounds, 
Give us strength in the midst of weakness that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory and praise to your name. I pray this morning as we unpack this text, Lord, that you would help me, that your spirit would be thinking through my mind and speaking through my vocal cords, that, the, that you would be at work in the hearers, opening our ears, softening our hearts to receive. And because of your work this morning, that we would walk out of here as better, more godly, Christly people. That you would help us for your glory. And our good, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think the Apostle John would agree with that statement. In fact, I would argue that the point of his 21-chapter gospel account that we've been studying for months and months here at Sacred City, his intent is to reveal to us the real Jesus, that we would know him as he is, that we would believe in him as we ought and have life in his name. Now, not only is John here presenting the account of Jesus through his life and ministry and the things that led up to his death and resurrection, but we also have three other accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in spite of this rich treasury that reveals to us who Jesus is, we have a tendency to create our own Jesus. We have a tendency to act like tailors and create a designer Jesus that suits us well. And there are all kinds of renditions of this. Let me name a few. First of all, I think maybe this is the most prevalent one right now, but it's the boyfriend Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. He gives me all the warm fuzzies, the lovey doveys. It's like, I just imagine me and Jesus skipping through a field of lilies, holding hands and staring into each other's eyes. And you know what? A lot of our contemporary worship music, you listen to the radio, a lot of that stuff leans right into that. You got him. You got Jesus, the homeboy. He's my buddy. We kick it. We hang out on the weekends. Jesus is my buddy, but he doesn't have any authority over me. You've got Jesus, the good luck charm. You know, I'll keep him around because every once in a while I might need him. Or, or, or maybe this pairs up with Jesus, the safety net. If all else fails, at least Jesus is there to pick me up when I fall. You've got Jesus, the Yoda. Oh, wise one, right? This, this, the wise fella, the sage that can, every once in a while, have this little tidbit that he can share with me. And so we take these versions of Jesus and, and we, f- we fashion them, we make them to our own liking. Now here's the problem with this. These versions of Jesus are mythological creatures. They're not real. And if Jesus is a mythological creature, he is of no help in the real world. C.S. Lewis 
wrestles with this idea, this temptation that we have to create our own version of Jesus, to create our own version of God, instead of receiving the revealed Christ, God revealed through his scriptures. And in struggling with his, the loss of his wife, he writes in the book, Grief Observed, he says, I need Christ. Not something that resembles him. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. In fact, he shatters himself. And then he goes on to say, not my idea of God, but God. He says, I, I don't want my own construction, my own, my own designer Jesus. I want the real Jesus, and so should we. We should desire to know the real Jesus, not according to our imaginations or, or our preferences, but according to the word of God. And it's only when we understand to see the real Jesus that we find everything we need in life and in godliness. Now the second half of John chapter 10 is the last public episode of Jesus's ministry. As, as we progress into John's gospel, Jesus kind of secludes himself, especially from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who will later come back into the picture around his crucifixion, his, his, his bogus trial. But Jesus, this is the last presentation that he has of himself in sort of a public setting. And throughout these, specifically John 7, 8, 9, and 10, Jesus has been putting forth his identity. Here's who I am. He's making a public claim about who he truly is. And we've seen this through many of these I am statements that you can kind of see indicated here on these banners. He says, I'm the light of the world. I am the bread of life. At one point he says, I'm living water, or makes that reference at least, that come to me and you'll have living water. And from you will water flow from your heart. Last week we saw Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate which you must pass through to enter into eternal life. Jesus is revealing his identity to us. And as we saw last week, he said, I am the good shepherd. This week kind of continues that theme and expresses a facet of this identity of our Jesus, the real Jesus, that we often underestimate and underappreciate. And this challenges our modern conceptions of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna unpack this and, and show you what's going on here because maybe until this week, I've never understood this passage in this capacity before. And one of the things that helped key me into this new, um, this new revelation, it's not a new revelation, new to me, but it's here in scripture, is the reference to elapsed time in John chapter 10, verse 22. This is where our, our passage begins. It says, at, that, at the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. Okay, now we need to ask, why would John make such a specific reference to time? And he'll tell us the location, the season. Why would John do this? Well, it's to show us that the real Jesus entered time and space. He's not a mythological creature that just sort of is out there somewhere in some alternate universe. Jesus stepped into our world and occupied a specific place at a specific time. 
Now we also see a reference to this setting earlier on in John's, John chapter seven, actually John chapter seven through 10, the beginning of 10, we see a different setting. Jesus comes down from Capernaum and, and during the Feast of Booths, which is around the time of October, uh, John chapters 10, 7 through 10 unfold. And, and there's great significance about why it happens in October. First, it's supposed to be, this festival is supposed to be a celebration of the harvest that God has provided and, and they celebrate, but, but it also points back to the time during the Exodus where God's people were wandering from place to place throughout the wilderness and God had them set up in these booths. They had these tents that they lived in. And so every, every year, and this is something that God commands in Leviticus 23, he says, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. And, and this is cool because God is a God who commands us to party. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And the reason why, in fact, if you, if you have been reading with us through our Feast of Flourish Bible reading plan, we see why God gives these celebrations, like the Passover, which we'll see later on. But God puts these things here as markers in time to remember what God has done in the past. That God's past faithfulness helps us understand that God has present grace for us and a future faithfulness. That the generations that come after us would ask questions like, why, hey dad, why are we living in a tent for a week? Oh, that's interesting you ask, son. Here's why. But look what God did. This is why we do it. Now, understanding the Feast of Booths uh, for John chapter seven through 10, actually puts a greater significance. Jesus says incredibly profound things in John chapter seven through 10. And the context of the Feast of Booth actually provides extra significance. There, there's a deeper, more robust meaning to all of the things that he said because it invokes all of these things from the Exodus account. Why, why Jesus is, it says he li- offers living water, like the rock that Moses struck, that water poured out. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, like the pillar of light that led the people through the desert. He says, I am the shepherd, like God being the shepherd of Israel, leading his people through place to place to place into the promised land. I am the gate. Jesus, all of these things put up a greater significance in remembering the past. And now we see a transition. So now it says, we're here in, in the winter, verse 22 says. And the Jews are observing a different feast, the Feast of Dedication, or it's also known as the Feast of Lights, not to be confused with the the Hindu celebration of Diwali. This is a distinctly Jewish celebration that we would also know as Hanukkah. And unlike the Feast of Booths, which was instituted by God in Leviticus 23, this feast is not in the Old Testament. It's not there. Because the origins of this celebration, the Feast of Dedication, happened during the intertestimonial period. In fact, so you you know that you've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament. What you may not know is that there was a 400-year gap between the conclusion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years. And and just because the the Bible isn't recording things doesn't mean that history stops. And we have other historical documents that tell us some of the things that were going on. And one of the things that happened in this time in 167 BC, I'm gonna take you to the history classroom for a second. 
In 167 BC, there was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a wicked man. He was hungry for greater domain. And he, by force, overran Jerusalem. He took over the temple and desecrated it. His main objective in taking over Jerusalem was to import paganism. He wanted to be their one unified religion, and it just so happened that he wanted everybody to worship his false gods. And in order to make that a thing, he essentially outlawed Judaism. So the Jews couldn't worship how they were supposed to worship God. And part of this was in the fact that he desecrated the temple. He, he caused priests to do things that would defile, specifically offering, um, offering sacrifices that were pigs, which were detestable and not uh, a right sacrifice to God. So he stepped in, made life really, really hard for the Jews. And what we see in this time is essentially a battle of the gods. It's really what, I mean, you step back. And one of the things that keys us into this is that, that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, his, his name trans, translates into God manifest. Right? He's got a God complex, okay? And he is here as a, a pagan God or pagan man wanting to institute a pagan religion, trying to go head to head against Yahweh, the one true living God. Like this is a boom, collision course. And for years, the Jews were helpless under his rulership. They were trampled on, and there are also a lot of horrifying tales of him killing women and children. So here you have the Jews who feel very helpless. And then in 164 BC, this valiant warrior kind of pops up. His name is Judas Maccabeus, and he has a great nickname. He was called the Hammer, and that means don't mess with him. And Judas Maccabeus, he, he collects this band of soldiers, which are like, this is not the A-team here. He gets these guys and convince them, we need to do something about this. And he leads a revolt. And in spite of being vastly outnumbered, in spite of having enemies sort of pressing from every angle, Judas Maccabeus is able to lead his troops into victory. And the first thing that he does as he defeats uh, this, this uh, Epiphanes guy is that he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He takes out all of the pagan idols. He takes out all of the things that would defile the, the temple, and he consecrates it. He devotes it. He dedicates it back to the Lord. That's why you get the Feast of Dedication, the temple being redevoted unto the Lord. And his purpose in this was to restore the true right worship of Yahweh. And so what they did there after that happened, they had this the festival of dedication that is an eight-day celebration where the Jews would observe it each year. They, and in this, they were thanking God for providing this valiant warrior to raise up, to defend them, to liberate them. But they were also looking ahead, you know, both back and forward in the sense that Judas Maccabeus, he was a great man. He was sort of a, a Jewish hero, a valiant warrior, the sanctifier of the temple, the liberator of God's chosen people. And so they, they, in thanking God, they acknowledged this man and what he had done for them. 
So this is the context of the setting, the, the Feast of Dedication. Now, throughout John chapter seven through 10, we've seen multiple places where Jesus makes claims to be greater than other great men that have come before him. So we've seen this directly with Abraham. He says, before Abraham was I. He says it's about Moses. He's saying, I'm, I'm greater than Moses. You can even see a kind of an allusion to this in last week's passage about the good shepherd being a better shepherd than King David, who was the shepherd king. And now, as if Jesus is making a pop culture reference, he's standing here and he's saying, there is a man greater than Judas Maccabeus standing right here at your temple. All of these Jewish heroes, though they were great men, they all pale in comparison to Jesus. So Judas Maccabeus, regarded as a valiant warrior, as a hero, defender of the Jews. We see that, and Jesus says, I am even greater than him. Maccabeus and Judas, or Jesus, excuse me, Judas Maccabeus, not the, uh, Judas, Judas Maccabeus. In John chapter two, at the very beginning of the ministry, Jesus goes to the temple. You remember what he does? He cleanses the temple. In fact, in John chapter one, when we're told that the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, saying he tabernacled among us. It's saying that Jesus himself is the true and better temple, the temple that is undefiled because Jesus himself is sinless. We see Jesus coming to restore the right worship of God. When he speaks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, he says, but the hour is coming and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus restores the right worship. We see Jesus being in opposition, he, he's got foes in his midst. In fact, that's one of the things that we've seen through these last four or five chapters is that Jesus, his ministry, um, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders don't like him. They've tried to stone him on several occasions. And here in verse 24, one of the things that we see right away is that Jesus gets surrounded by his foes. He's outnumbered by his foes. Verse 24 says this. He says, um, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him. Other, other, other translations say he, they surrounded him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Right? They, they, they have this mob attack. They're trying to gang up on, on Jesus. And, and throughout his ministry, they're, they're launching accusations at Jesus. They're telling him, oh, we think you're demon-possessed. We, we think you're a phony. And then multiple times trying to kill him. So you see all these parallels between Judas Maccabeus and Jesus, and one of the things that we have to realize here is that Jesus is undeniably asserting his identity as a warrior. Or in other theological terms, Christus Victor. Christ triumphant, Christ the warrior, Christ the victor. Now, this is one of the things that we see here in the dialogue with Jesus, where he's talking about that he is the son who's been sent by the father. 
that he's got heavenly origins. He's, he's come down. Now, the accusations about, about Jesus is that he is a man making himself God, but the irony of this accusation is that he is God who's made himself man. And Jesus is saying here to them, and he said it through all those who had listened to him, that he has been sent by the Father to do the works of the Father, to speak the message of the Father, so that he might save people from sin and death and triumph over evil once and for all. Now, here's the thing where... where this is significant because if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, you see all kinds of prophecies about this, this anointed one. This, the, the Hebrew word would be Messiah or the Greek word, the Christ who would come and fulfill all of Scripture's prophecies to step into this office of, of the defender, of the savior, of the liberator of God's people. And Jesus here is saying that that's me. I am the Christ, I am. In fact, he told that to the Samaritan woman, that the Christ, he's right here in front of you right now. Now, th- there's been murmurs about this, about Jesus being the Christ, and this is why the Pharisees come to him and gang up on him and demand a straight answer in verse 24. Is it, stop, stop pulling our chains. It, it, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, here's here's what's going on. Jesus has plainly said it. The the works of the Father clearly show that Jesus is this anointed one. Doing the works. If you don't believe in what I say, at least believe in my works. But the problem with the Pharisees is they had a very specific kind of expectation about what this Messiah, the Christ, would be like. They, They thought that the Messiah would come much like Judas Maccabeus did, wielding a sword, to to create political liberation, to, to, to tell the oppressor to take his foot off our throat and let us be our own nation. And the problem with this is that Jesus, in his ministry, now, now there's a, a ripple effect that, that where Jesus and what he says and does has a ripple effect that carries out into the political sphere, but Jesus does not come as a political figure to upend the Roman, the Greek persecution. And so Jesus doesn't fit the mold here of the Pharisees who in some way want this political liberator. And so in this way, Jesus is not like Judas Maccabeus who carries a sword around, who, who cuts down the enemies in a very literal way. Jesus doesn't wield a sword during his ministry. In fact, the time when Peter, during, during um, his betrayal in their garden, uh, his, his buddy Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off a dude's ear, and he says, hey, put it away. My, my, my movement here is not by the sword. The, the, my ministry is not marked by brute force. There are no metal weapons here, but Christ did have a weapon. His weapon was a wooden cross. His weapon was a Roman death device that he himself would climb upon. And in this, He doesn't just bring political liberation, but he liberates his people spiritually. I mean, if you remember back, he talks about being slaves to sin. 
Right? You're stuck in your sin. Your sin keeps you held back. He's like, that's what I've come. And in, in Colossians 2.15, actually, we'll go to 14. Here's what, here's what it says that happened as Jesus climbed up on this cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in this act, this, this, to your average person, this act of Jesus getting up on a cross looks like straight up weakness. What a pansy. If he was tough, he would have, you know, like, he would have called his angels to come get him off the cross. Right, those are some of the, the, the ridicules that Jesus heard as he was hanging there. But Jesus stayed on the cross because this was the way to disarm the enemy. This was the way to triumph over the powers, the rulers, the principalities. Now Jesus does, this is, blows my mind. He defeats death by death. He cancels the debt of sin by taking it on himself. He deals with sin, which is the thing that hinders us from worshiping God rightly as we ought. And so, while the Pharisees might look and say, well, he's, he's really not a hero. He's not the political liberator. No, no, no. Jesus is a liberator in a way they can't even conceive. In a different sense, Jesus has fulfilled the office, the role of the warrior shepherd. Now we see his, his wasn't taken from him. Jesus gave up his life because he could pick it back up again. The Father granted him that ability. And so we see what looks like what might look like weakness, but then we get this other picture of Jesus throughout the scriptures. This picture of Jesus that we can see in, in Revelation 19. It says in, in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Huh. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is undeniable. Who is this? Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, Jesus paints, or just John 
in the book of Revelation paints a picture for us of the warrior Jesus. And, and this isn't a new development. In fact, you go back to the Old Testament, Jesus is the mighty man of Isaiah 42 that says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Jesus is the king of glory of Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Does this square with your version of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, do you think of a mighty warrior who treads down his foes, who stands unrivaled, who can crush the enemy at his own choosing? For many Christians, we don't get that sense. In fact, um, I don't know much about this guy, but I found his quote on, on this passage in Jeremiah that just made me laugh out loud, and I want to share it with you, because he remarks on this common misconception that we have about Jesus. He says, it's too bad much of the church has lost this vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. Too many of us regard this conception as substandard, by which we mean it does not fit our sentimental 20th century graven images of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent. And we do the same for the Lord Jesus with perhaps not a little help from church school materials. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal or solidify the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. If our he is of no help to us, we are hopeless, we are defeated. Because if Satan, death, and sin are truly as strong and threatening and powerful as we think them to be, then we need a superiorly strong savior who can defeat the enemy. We need a savior who can defend us against the threats and all of the, the, the things that assail us, that trying to knock us out of God's care. We need a savior, a strong savior, who can keep us tight in his grip and hold on when we can't seem to hold on ourselves. See, this is exactly what Jesus says in verses 28 through 29. Let me jump back to John 10, maybe. I think I lost it. John 28, Jesus says, I give them, he's talking about his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, in the context of the Feast of Dedication, Jesus stands before them. In the context of John 10, earlier passage where he says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus stands before his people, before the Pharisees, and testifies, I am the warrior shepherd. He fights for his people. G.K. Chesterton has this great quote. He says, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Now, Jesus hates sin, wickedness, evil. He does. He hates that. But we're told in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved his people that he sent his only son. See, it is love for his sheep that drives Jesus to fight for his own. Because he loves his sheep, he fights for us. He is our victor. Now, we saw in last week, and we see it again in in verse 27, how, how Jesus, the shepherd, has tenderness toward his flock. He knows us. He loves us. We know him. We follow his voice. We trust him. See, in those ways, Jesus is that tender shepherd. Jesus has tenderness towards his sheep, which means he has tenderness towards those who know him, who believe in him, who obey him. And he tells us very directly in verse 26, the Pharisees, they don't belong to that flock. They're not his sheep because they don't believe. Now we see the tenderness of Jesus towards his own, but at the same time, we must see that Jesus is a competent shepherd He's the warrior who can guard us from the threats. He's greater than all. He says, my father who is greater than all, he's put them in my hand, I put them back in his hand. We've got them tight, we've got them secure. Because Jesus can defend his people, it's the reality that no one, no thing, no power can snatch us out of his hand. Now, a lot of times, we we don't... Warrior, that, that sort of tenacious attitude. In fact, one of the places that, that we ought to have that is when we read about David, King David, who was the shepherd warrior who was known for defending his flock, fighting bears and lions, being fearless, going against the enemy. He had sheep to protect, and he did it well. And now Jesus is saying, I can defend my flock. I can keep my flock safe. Now this brings us into the glorious reform doctrine of the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. This means that not only are we saved by God's power, but we are kept in God's power. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of a result of works, so that none may boast. 
So we're saved by God's power and his might, saved by God's grace. But God doesn't save us and then expect us to maintain that position. God does it for us. Through his power and his might, we are kept. And Jesus is saying this directly here in John chapter 10, but there's a bunch of other places in scripture that point to this reality. Philippians 1.6 is one of them. The apostle Paul says, and I am sure of this. He's not just saying I'm optimistic about this, or, or the, the likelihood of this is optimistic. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We see this in other places. I think this is like the crown jewel of the Bible. Uh, maybe it's not fair to say this, but Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 28, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, check this out, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see this progression. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the kind of warrior shepherd Jesus is. In his care, it's not that we're untouchable. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna experience trials and, and pain and grief, but here's the deal. Through the whole thing, he holds us tight. He doesn't let us go. Now, this is incredibly good news for the Christian. This is incredibly good news. To see that salvation is God's work that I receive, the power of God. This is good news because if salvation is my own choice, if it's up to me to decide, well, yeah, I've, I've heard the arguments, I think, I've weighed the options, yeah, it seems pretty fair, pretty logical to say, okay, I finally am deciding to follow Jesus. If salvation is my choice or my doing, guess what? That means you could lose it yourself too. If you can choose your way in to the kingdom of God, you can lose yourself out of the kingdom of God. You could slip through the cracks. But this is not at all the way 
God presents salvation, the Christian life, as if it's our choice. Because that's not the kind of savior that Jesus is. Jesus is not this laissez-faire guy that's like, hey, I'm gonna do all this cool stuff, and I'm just like, I'm just hoping that people will kind of come, check it out, hopefully they'll buy into it. We'll just leave it up to their own. No, no, no. Jesus isn't like that. That's passive. Jesus is actively engaged. He is strong and deliberate as a savior. He says, I know the ones who belong to my father and I am going to do what it takes to save them, to call them out of the kingdom of darkness and into my kingdom of light. My grace will be irresistible. It's going to work. It's infectious. And as I have them in my grip, I will keep them in my grip. This gives us real assurance. This gives us real assurance. If we understand that if Jesus, it's his power that saves us and it's power, his power that keeps me saved, this gives me assurance. Because if I belong to Jesus, then I will belong to him forever. It's not the strength of my faith that saves me. It's the object of my faith that saves me. See, faith is me holding on to God. God's grace is him holding on to me. And he has ample grace and ample power to do this. Now, what happens when people don't understand that, when people don't see Jesus as this strong and mighty savior who does everything that he intends to do, people often get to a place where they're always questioning their salvation. Instead of living in confident assurance, which, which I think, well, I would call it a tulip Christian, somebody, somebody who understands the doctrines of grace, having great confidence in the work of the Lord, instead of operating from that place of confident assurance in Christ, we become nervous, anxious. Did it stick? Will it last? And that makes us into daisy Christians. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And life becomes this roller coaster of up and down. And what, what causes it to go up and down? Usually it's my feelings, how much I feel like God loves me. We have to realize, because God will finish what he started, that his grip is tighter on me than anything I can do to wiggle out of it. If, if I'm his, I'm his. There's no wiggling out of it. If we belong to Jesus, we have all kinds of security. We have all kinds of assurance. Why? Well, what, what is it that gives us this confidence? What is it that, that instills in us assurance? It's the fact that Jesus is God. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. That Jesus is God. In him, the fullness of deity. Because Jesus is God. He says, I and the Father am one. In verse 30, his arm is not too short to save us. His, not, his strength is not lacking to keep us in his grip. 
This is why we have great confidence. In fact, you see this confidence sort of exude out of the Apostle Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he boasts, he taunts sin and death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory, you sucker? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus for who he really is, the warrior shepherd, the defender, the one who has his grip on us, who keeps us. And that confidence, that assurance, does something in us that's paradoxical. It quiets our soul, it contents us, and makes us, well, it's like when he says in Romans 8, um, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right, yeah, life is hard. I'm gonna go through stuff. It's gonna be painful. But God is for me, which means that no weapon formed against me will prosper That quiets our soul, that, that increases our trust. But here's, here's where it gets, it's like we have a quieted soul, but at the same time, we just saw Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 just like swagger in the room, like, what up, sin? What up, death? You're nothing. You're nothing. Because in Christ, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors, because Christ is our victor. We are more than conquerors, and that allows us to, like Jesus, who, who is this bold shepherd warrior, to fight against the darkness. See, Christians have this tendency that when things get really bad out in the culture, we just hunker down and hide out, like they get this sort of monastic sort of mentality. Let's, let's hide away to the enclaves. Let's go into the mountains and take refuge. We don't want to, it's like, no. If Christ is truly the victor, he intends to have his rule and reign spread over every square inch of this world. And as Christians, this gives us a boldness not to run and cower, not to hide away, but as godly, disciplined, compassionate, bold people step into the world and confront and fight the darkness. Because Jesus is one. Victory is certain. Anything that is done in the name of Christ to advance the kingdom of heaven so it be here on earth as it is in heaven, that will be blessed and will remain. But it's the reality that we are in Christ, that we are, are more than conquerors in him that allows us to step out. And what the church needs, we need this mix of, of the compassionate shepherd, tender-hearted men and women whose hearts beat after the heart of God. But at the same time, are bold and courageous, valiant men and women who fight against evil and darkness so the kingdom of light would advance. And in this, the peoples of the nations will be blessed. In this, the people in our neighborhood, our city, they'll be blessed. 
And this comes from an attitude that we know that Christ is the warrior shepherd. The warrior shepherd who lays down his life for us. On the night when he was took, took the bread and broke it and he gave his disciples say, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same night he took the cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, do this in remembrance of me. Now we know Good Friday was a thing. Jesus died. His body was broken, his blood was shed, he was placed in a tomb. But we also know that Resurrection Sunday came around three days later that he rose victoriously over the grave. And so as we come to this meal, we come with an attitude knowing that Christ is the victor, that Jesus wins. And so this is a banquet, a feast of victory for God and his people. Let us come and eat, knowing in Christ we are more than conquerors. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is not just a figment of our imaginations. He, he's, he's not something that changes and morphs to our preferences. He is the eternal God who has always and will always possess all of his attributes. And yes, you are merciful and gracious and compassionate. At the same time, you are mighty and full of power and all glory and honor is due to your name. Help us to see the real Jesus, the real Jesus who fights for us, who brings us into salvation and keeps us there. And would our heart and our affections swell for this mighty shepherd warrior who comes, lays down his life, and picks it back up again that we might have life and life eternal in his name. Bless us as we take this meal. Make us men and women who, who live out of this assurance that you may be glorified and more we would come to know the real Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.